What would it take to arouse your life, to experience more connection, more pleasure, more realness in and outside of the bedroom? I'm August McLaughlin, and this is Girl Boner Radio. You know, it's funny, but I was thinking about introducing you. Yeah. I was like, this is my dear friend, Fiona. And we have had 1.2 conversations, I think. I think so. And been together in person just today. Right. <laughs> but it feels like we've been friends forever. Yeah. Yeah. I Isn't love that. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Yes. I know. It's, yeah, I'm very grateful. Very grateful to be here in person. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, so fun. Yeah, it's been, uh, I think, well, for sure two years. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, since recording in studio. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So hang on. So this is your first This is your first recording in studio mm-hmm. since COVID. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, and it feels very right that it's you. Yeah, thank you. Yes, it does. It does. It is special. <laughs> I love my notes. One of them is blowjob learning curve. <laughs> We will get to that learning curve. That was a clip from my sound check with award-winning filmmaker Fiona Dawson. Following her Emmy-nominated short New York Times op doc, Transgender at War and in Love, she was honored by President Obama as an LGBT artist champion of change. Her feature documentary, Trans Military, premiered at South by Southwest 2018, winning the Audience Award. I first learned about Fiona's work when I received a copy of her forthcoming book, Are Bisexuals Just Greedy? and 20 Other Rather Direct Questions Asked of the LGBTQ Plus Community. Fiona and I had tried to record remotely a few weeks before our studio chat, twice actually, and it was like the tech gods wanted us to connect in person. After a few confusing glitches, Fiona shared that she was coming to L.A. for the GLAAD Awards, so we took COVID tests and headed to a new studio space to record with my pre-pandemic engineer and always friend and colleague, Mackenzie Mazel. And within minutes, Fiona had me wondering if I had connected with my psychic powers. I actually had a dream that we were in one of those hippie vans. Did I tell you this? No. After our first conversation, we were in this like painted hippie van and we were going to like a senior's home, which is one of my dreams to go and interview people like over 80 about their sexuality. Yeah. It was just this big thing we were doing. And our our van was literally painted with those like hippie flowers. That is so cool. Yeah. It was very like 70s slash today. (laughs) Because did you know I've bought a camper? I now live in a caravan. Uh-uh. Yeah. What? Did I just have a psychic moment? Isn't that weird? <laughs> I know, so I bought crazy. my cam- caravan about four weeks ago. When did we talk? I could have told you that I was buying one. Okay, I, I like my, my psychic but moment But I like better. your psychic moment much better. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. Okay. <laughs> you sound, how do we sound, Mackenzie? Everything's good. Okay, so should we just roll right in? When, okay. Okay. Are you ready to roll? I'm ready to roll. So I know that you had, how do I put this? 
like a sex positive upbringing, relatively speaking, for someone who was raised Catholic. <laughs> exactly. I know it kind of feels like a, a conflict in some ways. But yes, I call myself a recovered Catholic. And so you're growing up in that environment, as many people are very aware of, where you've been giving messages as though sex should only be reserved for marriage. It's very a heteronormative perspective. But my parents were both uh, working in healthcare. So in England, you have the National Health Service. So it's kind of like working for a charity, really, because <laughs> everyone gets um, healthcare free at point of access. And so they were very giving people. I'm talking in the past for my mother because she died in 2006 but of pancreatic cancer, but really kind of helped form me to be the woman that I am today. And of course, my father is still alive and um, love him very much too. And he now has to get to witness <laughs> me with all my antics. But my mom, one of her jobs was um, director of healthcare for a large area in the UK in Lincolnshire. And she once had to spearhead sexual health services um, for really teens, you know, people under the age of 21. Of course, in England growing up, the age of consent was 16. So she would provide like initiated clinics for 16 year olds and like teenagers and younger kids to be able to access um, healthcare services and STD prevention and condoms and that kind of stuff. And I remember one year she went to Amsterdam to learn about how sex workers got healthcare needs met and so you know when your parents go on a work trip and they come home and they always bring you a gift and the gift my mum brought me when I was about 16 was a little condom in a red packet and it had like a ladybug on it and it was like a plastic ladybug it was so cute I never used that condom but it like sat on display <laughs> in my bedroom and then our kitchen drawer you know commonly known as the junk drawer when you don't know what to put where to put something just bung it in that drawer and ours um, was filled with condoms and uh, I asked my dad when I was writing this book about that drawer. And I said, did mum like purposely leave condoms there or were they just there because she didn't know where else to put them? And he's like, no, she put them there. She wanted you to know that you could access them if you needed them. <laughs> it's really cool, even though, yeah, but it was still a Catholic environment. Did your parents talk to you about sex as well? Yeah. I mean, were they Catholic? Did you go to church on Sundays? Yep. Mum yeah. took us to church every Sunday. Dad, because he was a GP, he did not go to church as much as we did. He'll go for like the high holidays. But he told me that he had a problem with the Catholic church being against um, sex in general and contraception, abortion. And yet he as a doctor, knew that it was in the best interest of his patients to be able to give them access to those healthcare needs. And so that conflict for him was too much. And so he didn't go to church. And we also like, I'm the oldest of three. Um, I have a sister who's the middle one and then my brother who's the youngest. And we were so irritated that dad didn't have to go to church, but we did. <laughs> like, you know, we were like always annoying it's going to church. But yeah, so when I was around the age of nine, my brother would have been five. And my mum had given me a, a kid's book with illustrations. It's like a, you know, a cartoon book talking about how babies were made. And so I felt really special that I got to have this information and my brother and sister didn't. And it really talked about how, you know, the daddy puts his penis inside the mummy and... <laughs> 
and semen's come out and they make a baby. <laughs> I mean, and that, that's what I was taught. And um, I was also taught that it was a very special act. It was for when people were in love and so on and so forth. Anyway, one day, mum comes home from work <laughs> and finds me using this book to educate my brother and his friend on how babies were made. And <laughs> so, you know, I thought I was being helpful as a teacher. <laughs> And um, I remember my brother's friend, Alex, was like, ew, my mummy and daddy don't do that. That's disgusting. (laughs) Well, that's how you were made. (laughs) I didn't get into trouble for it, but because I was educating, you know. Right. It sounds like you didn't have any mixed feelings about it. You just thought that this was wonderful information. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. And then I finally left the Catholic Church when I was around 16, 17, because I um, lost my virginity about three months shy of my 16th birthday. So I was 15 still. And I was very much in love with my first proper boyfriend. His name's Bob. We were together for three years, you know, from 15 to 18. And um, Bob and I decided that we were ready and we wanted to make love. And so I went to see my doctor, who happens to work with my dad, (laughs) And I went to get the pill to make sure that uh, we were safe and couldn't get pregnant. Neither of us had had sex before, so we weren't worried about STDs. And I went on the pill and we waited until like I'd been taking the pill for about a month to make sure it kicked in. And um, I decided to like to tell my parents that we'd made this decision. Uh, so I told mum first. And then one evening I sat down on the sofa with my dad and I said, Daddy, I've got something I need to talk to you about. He's like, yes. I said, Bob and I have decided to make love. <laughs> imagine telling your father like your 15 year old that is so (laughs) sweet that it it wasn't like have sex no we are going to make Make love love. right so so he's like took a deep breath he's like okay i said um i've gone to see anna he's his colleague i've got the pill i'm on the pill making sure that i can't get pregnant and um so I just want you to know that it's going to be okay. And he said, well, that doesn't mean that you can share the same bed when you're sleeping, you know, over here. Because he would stay the night sometimes, but always had to be in separate bedrooms. And I said, no, 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 it's fine. You know, we, we're not expecting any of that. I'm thinking to myself, we're just going to have to like figure out how and when, you know. And the, the conversation ended with dad saying, I'm proud of you. And so that was really cool. <laughs> so that I'm very grateful and lucky that my parents, you know, had that oh. attitude where... Yeah, yeah, that it was natural. Yeah, I think they would have preferred that I didn't. They would have preferred that I, of course, remained a quote-unquote good Catholic girl and waited till marriage and whatever. But they were open-minded to realizing that that's not necessarily going to be the case. And so I was never shamed for sex. And I think that they did a really great job. And I'm getting emotional saying this because I'm so proud of my parents for doing this, of walking that line between not encouraging me to just go out recklessly but at the same time weren't shaming me for sexual attraction yeah and I think that must be very difficult for parents and to not say I would rather you wait right you know looking back you can see that oh they probably had these mixed feelings but I think because most parents learned less than their children are exposed to sexually yeah it's so easy to have shame, like more shame than their kids have. Completely. And they protected you from that. Because they never had that kind of environment. I know, like my mum's family was very strictly Catholic. Mum told me 
that my dad was the only person she ever had sex with. And um, she admitted that they had sex just before they got married, but it wasn't, I think, until they were engaged. Mm. Um, my dad's not quite so open about his sex life and I really don't want to know. <laughs> but I'm, I'm pretty confident dad did have sex with other people other than my mum because he just like kept his mouth shut, whereas mum was very proud of that. Mm. Um, so yeah, so that they must have just discovered that, I think probably through their work and just being the type of people that they are. Yeah, yeah wow. After interviewing Fiona, I asked listeners through my email list what they recalled about any sex talks with an adult early on and what they recalled from their first consensual sexual experience. Only two of the first 40 people who replied mentioned anything positive about those sex talks. That, paired with limited and confusing school sex ed, are probably why their first times having sex ranged from mysterious and awkward to forgettable or not good at all. Here are a few ways folks described their sex debut. Boring and I hardly felt anything, lol. Awkward on top of a pile of clothes in my basement. Someone else described jackhammer fingering that sounded really painful. Others used words like mediocre, strange, quick, anticlimactic, sweaty, and significant. There were a few especially positive memories, though, too. One listener recalled the warmth from receiving oral, being in a vagina, coupled with the added bonus of giving a rim job. They said it, quote, left me on an emotional high the next day. Another said that their partner helped them prepare well in advance, making for an excellent experience. I loved hearing how the normalcy around sexuality that Fiona had learned played out in her first time having sex. Do you remember anything that stands out from your first experience? Yes. I can remember, I can put myself back in time and and remember having sex, making love with Bob for the very first time. I can. I can remember like lying on my back. It was like, what's the word? It was very practical, I guess, but it was very loving and very emotional. Like we were very much in love. Like he's one of the best, healthiest relationships I've ever had. You know, and I'm going to be turning 45 this summer and I was 15. So goodness me, we're at 30 years ago. And he still remains like just such a special relationship. Like I'm so grateful for that as well because it was like a foundation. And I can remember like lying on my back. I mean, do I, should I get really into it here? Like, is yes. there a TMI? Charades here? No. Okay, good. I can remember feeling him inside of me. He's on top of me. And we're like looking in each other's eyes. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm having sex. I'm having sex. I'm having sex. Oh my God, I, this is sex. Oh my gosh. And like, Aww. you know, <laughs> yeah. I know I didn't come. <laughs> like, because we were just like you know, put the penis inside the vagina and we like, around I remember it. this from page six. Right, yes, exactly. <laughs> it was great, like, he came inside of me. I can remember feeling, like, so adult, like I had really definitely crossed a line. And then we did have a really cool, healthy sex life, like, where both, like, he did make me orgasm as well in different ways. So it was not 
a one-sided sexual relationship. And that's because we were so emotionally close and intimate that we could talk about anything and share everything. Like I thought I was going to marry Bob and have six children and we were going to live on a ski slope in Switzerland. (laughs) But clearly that didn't happen. I cannot (laughs) picture you with any of that. That's hilarious. It's so funny though, what we imagine for ourselves. And I look back and I go, thank goodness. I did not end up with that first picture in my mind of my forever. Oh, I would have been so miserable. Exactly. Of course, first loves do last and beautifully so for some people. My parents, for example. They just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary and they are still very much dating each other. For Fiona and Bob, the romance did not last and not because the love ended. I went to university and we decided to go to separate places because we wouldn't want to force our relationship together because we've been together since we were so young. We thought, you know, if we're going to meant to be together, then we can withstand going to different universities. And of course, like within (laughs) me being at college for three months, I'm like, um, I think I really want to try some other things (laughs) as well. (laughs) So poor Bob, (laughs) we broke up with him. (laughs) I know. How did that go? Awful. It was horrific. He was so sad. And I was so sad because Mm. part of me didn't want to, but I also knew that I just had this instinctual calling inside of myself that I was meant to do lots of things in my life. And that staying in that relationship was kind of going to prevent me from exploring other people and experiences and not just sex, but just like life in general. Um, but he just recently got married, like this year, I think. Um, so happy marriage <laughs> to Bob and Diane. And yeah, I mean, everything's worked out in the end, but our lives went in extremely different directions. Wow. But, so you had yeah. an exploratory time, would you say, after yeah. that? Then I started like having lots of sex at college. <laughs> um, and in relationships too. Like in the past, I've had a habit of wanting to create the relationship that my mind wants and like staying with people way longer than I should because I'm trying to like make a square peg fit into a round hole (laughs) to use that kind of pun um and then at college like you know one night stands and that kind of stuff but I would say that um looking back at the sexual experiences that I've had in my late teens early 20s and then even in my 30s oftentimes I think it's actually not been as good as I as I, my mind wants to think it is usually it's quite a bit shitty really <laughs> it's like, but you don't say it is right. you just do it don't you think that religion has a lot to do with that even yeah. when you're exploring because I too grew up in a very religious community with some very open-minded religious people and some not at all open-minded yeah. religious people and even resisting those messages and being like well that can't be true yeah still I remember I would literally be thinking when I would meet someone, like, is this my husband? Yes. And if we had (laughs) sex, like my rebellion was more like, if we were going to have sex, he had to at least be a possible husband. Yeah. Like that to me was like stepping outside without going to hell or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think I constantly was looking for a husband, wife, or non-binary term, (laughs) a partner. Um, And very quickly have a habit of like meeting someone, feeling the fireworks and sparks, and then immediately thinking about what our life is going to be like in five years time, which is ridiculous. And I'm like being much more mindful to not 
run down that trap any longer. Yeah. And so, I mean, we all have our journeys and our experiences that we have to just learn from. And it's taking me, and I'm sure many other people listening to this, it, sometimes it's taking us freaking ages to figure this stuff out. Like, I've had to let go of the shame of not knowing what I'm doing in relationships when I'm now in my 40s still, you know. And then also going back and, like, having empathy for the person I was back then. Tell me if you relate. You have a product or service and you want more folks to know about it. And social media ads haven't worked out so great. Or maybe you want to take your current marketing strategies up several notches. I find podcast marketing so smart and helpful. Honestly, even if I didn't have a show of my own, I would recommend it. A recent study showed that podcast advertising is over four times more effective than display ads, with 67% of listeners remembering brands. And 63% of listeners surveyed said that they have made a purchase after hearing a podcast ad. I know I have, and I have gotten some sweet deals too. Zencaster's creator network makes it easy to not only reach potential customers through podcasts, but to make sure that your brand and the shows are a good fit. If you are interested in sponsoring this show or running ads on other podcasts, visit zen.ai slash girlbonerradio0. Fill in your contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. Again, that's zen.ai slash girlbonerradio0. Fiona did end up finding a spouse early on, and the marriage was one of those she-learned-from-it experiences. After college, went to Bangladesh to volunteer and fell in love with a U.S. Marine. It was one of the best times of my life. I was volunteering during the day, helping, quote-unquote, save the world, and then drinking Heineken and playing pool with the U.S. Marines. So I met Jason, fell in love, and of course, you don't even think about it. Like you meet someone, they're hot, so you go have sex with them, right? That's just what I was did. <laughs> and then quickly, it's like, but this has to be the relationship. And especially, again, because I was in Bangladesh, I wanted the story of me going to volunteer and meeting the love of my life and coming back with my Prince Charming and like setting it all up. And of course, like Jason probably, well, he wasn't the right person. We got divorced three years after getting married. And then Fiona said she came flying out of the closet as a lesbian. I had left my marriage because it wasn't a healthy marriage. And I was working for an HIV AIDS organization in Houston. So I was already within the LGBTQ community. And for the last six months of my marriage, it was like something had triggered on inside of me. I hadn't been smothering feelings before, but it gradually started to become to my awareness that I was attracted to women. And back then I was using very binary language in terms for gender and sex. So um, just want to put that out there that I know <laughs> gender's on a, um, on a spectrum. And so I 
realized that I was attracted to women, left my husband, had met somebody, and we had such an intense sexual, emotional connection that again, I was like, oh, she's the one, <laughs> like going down the similar line of like, okay, now we have to live together and let's have babies and stuff. Thank goodness we did not have babies. Um, but we were together for nearly two years. And because I was working in the LGBTQ community already and volunteering, it was like easy for me to come out as gay. It kind of felt exciting and cool to have found a community in a place where I belonged. Telling my family, my parents, they were like surprised and confused because they were like, what, like you're gay now? <laughs> like you, you never showed any signs. You had posters of Johnny Depp and Brad Pitt on your wall as, as a kid. You know, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, I'm gay. And so like, okay, Fiona's gay. In fact, my mum said, <laughs> one of my best friends, oh, Fiona will try anything once. <laughs> so I'm like, well, I'll try it once and then twice if I'm not sure, thank you. And then my sister said, well, don't you miss sex? <laughs> like, what do you mean? This is the best sex of my life. Oh, because she thought you could only have sex. I think it was the natural assumption, like, that you're raised to think sex is penis and vagina. Yeah. And so, so what else is there? Yeah. And bless her, Joey, I'm sorry. I love you. I hope you don't mind me telling that story because I know that you know better now, but I know better now too, Joey. So it's okay. Yeah. It's, not, it's not our um, fault when we don't know no, these things. No, no, no. Yeah. But I always find, found it funny because. No, I actually, for the first time, was really enjoying sex in a way that I hadn't before. About seven years after coming out as gay, Fiona came out as bisexual. In 2013, she published a moving YouTube video where she said it was harder coming out as bi than coming out as gay. She was single and living in New York when it dawned on her that she wasn't only attracted to women. And I realized that the only reason I was turning down a date with a guy was because I'd labeled myself a lesbian. But if I was really honest with myself, I was actually still attracted to, um, to, to men, to guys. It struck her that, oh my gosh, there's a B in LGBT. <laughs> like, why did I not think about that before? And so the YouTube video you're referencing, I put it up there because I was really afraid of coming out as bisexual. Because back in my days when I'd been a lesbian and working within the community, there was this biphobia that was just like a, a constant kind of wave in the background. You know, we really didn't talk about bi people very much. I didn't really know anyone other than one person who was bi. And I, in my mind, was frustrated that my friend identified as bi because I really wanted her to be gay <laughs> and like be all the way. And there was this this stigma that still exists that I acknowledge that I used to have as well, but I didn't see it or feel it as a stigma. It was just like an accepted part of the community. And also I had been um, voted female grand marshal for the Houston Pride Parade in 2009. And I was afraid that people would think that I'd been making it up and like maybe I wouldn't qualify as grand marshal anymore. Thankfully, that was not the case. They do acknowledge by women as grand marshals. Still, Coming out as bi felt more challenging than her last orientation reveal. Especially because I'd spent so many years defending myself as a gay person because I'd previously been married to a cisgender man. So it's really sad because the latest study from Gallup shows that 57% of the lesbian, gay and bi community actually identifies bisexual. And just this weekend, I was talking 
to another woman who most people assume is lesbian, but she's actually bi. And she's talking about it's easier just to let people think you're gay because then you don't have to explain or defend yourself. The prevalence of biphobia is a huge reason that bi folks hold a higher risk of mental health challenges, by the way. A large 2017 review of studies showed that compared to straight and gay folks, bi people have higher rates of depression and anxiety. And it's easy to absorb negative myths around being bi. Whether you are bi or another part of the LGBTQIA community or not, as gradually more people openly identify as bi, and with more awareness and advocacy, that has begun to change. And of course, Fiona is here for it. I'm excited that things are changing, and it's so cool to see that especially like the younger generations, you know, just in one year, Gen Z has gone from one in six Gen Z being like LGBTQ to now one in five. And it's not that <laughs> they're suddenly becoming LGBTQ, they're actually just turning 21, so it can now be counted. So we really are like breaking the binary, or as I like to say, we're unfucking gender and sexuality, because <laughs> it just needs to be unfucked, quite frankly. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's colonization that came in and put these rigid structures in. But every human being has a gender. Every human being is assigned a sex at birth. And every human being has a sexual orientation. And we are just somewhere on the spectrum or off the spectrum of those three different variables. They interlace and interact, but they're also separate. So my analogy is thinking of human beings as like a beautiful mosaic where, you know, we have more and less of different elements of these parts of us. And so one day I can envision that we won't be labeling the LGBTQ community as this bucket over here and then everyone else is straight. Instead, it will be all human beings have this capacity or no capacity in some way or the other. Yes. And that would be wonderful. Fiona continues to identify as bisexual, although she feels that the term pansexual equally applies to her. I chose bisexual because of the B in LGBT and I want to be a visible advocate. Bi and pan identities are similar, but not exactly the same. She explores this topic in her book in a chapter called Which Label is Better? Bisexual or Pansexual? I feel like bisexual and pansexual are like non-identical twins in that from a um, dictionary definition perspective, bi meaning two, pan meaning all. Now the two should not be confused with two genders because it's not. The two things are the same as or different from. So as a bi person, I have the capacity to be romantically and or sexually attracted to somebody of a similar gender or a different gender. <laughs> Whereas pan, meaning all, pan people have the um, capacity to be sexually and or romantically attracted to somebody of all genders or any gender. In the book, she uses a cherry analogy to explain this difference between bi and pan. It basically goes like this. The most 
common cherry used in cherry pie are Bing cherries. Okay, so let's just imagine that cherries are genders. So straight people would only like Bing cherry pie. Okay, they might like a lattice or a ledge, you know, there might be slight variation, but for the most part, it's really only Bing cherry pie that they like. Bisexual people, they also like Bing cherry pie, but they also have the capacity to be uh, attracted to a different type of cherry varietal as well. There are thousands of different types of cherries out there. And so bi people might be Bing cherry pie and one other cherry or more than one other cherry or all the cherries or how could they possibly know how many cherries because there are so many cherries to choose from and like you don't know if you haven't tried it. And then pan people <laughs> like Bing cherry pie and all the other cherries. <laughs> I mean, and I know again, that is a very binary, bare bones way of explaining things. And I know that there are going to be people listening to this that are not going to necessarily 100% agree with me. And that's fine because no human being is ever going to 100% agree with all the other human beings. But I think that we have to break things down into a binary bare bones way in order to educate other people that know absolutely nothing. There are people out there who really know nothing and they need to have this information and they need to be given it in a non-judgmental, non-critical way. And so I feel like my work is really reaching out to those people that are not part of the LGBTQ community. But at the same time, I always want to make sure that the LGBTQ community, especially non-binary people, know that I am with you. I see you, I'm like holding your hand, I'm giving you my heart and my love, but I'm gonna go talk to those people that voted against your rights because I wanna help those people understand because those people also have LGBTQ kids as well and we can't leave them out. Yeah, and it can be so intimidating too right. for somebody who all they know is penis in vagina. Right. That's all they know. Right. And if we come at them with 700 different terms yeah. and, you know, we all had to learn. And right. some of us were very fortunate to learn sooner. Some of us have been more inclined to study all of this. And a lot of times there's all this shame mm -hmm. that we've piled up and we don't even know it's there. And so I love that you're going into these communities. And also your book is so accessible. I mean, it's it's like delicious. I'm not saying yeah. that just because of I love the word delicious cherries. too. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, it's so inviting. Yeah. And the name itself says so much. <laughs> Tell us how your dad inspired the title of your book. Okay. So the title of my book is Are Bisexuals Just Greedy? And the subtitle is and 20 other rather direct questions asked of the LGBTQ plus community. The reason I titled the book this way was because Dad and I were sat on the sofa watching TV one night. I was probably in my teens. And he said, you know, I can understand men being gay and I can understand women being lesbians, but I think bisexuals are just greedy. And of course, I didn't really know what to think or take of this because I, did, I just still thought I was straight back then. But it always like stuck with me. And then it became like a common thing, like going back to the biphobia that I would witness be a part of before I came out as bisexual myself we were just thought of as just you know promiscuous people that just want to have all the sex with all the people <laughs> and that's not necessarily true because straight people sometimes want to have all the sex with all the people too it's not your identity that determines your behavior yeah it's so interesting as you were sharing that about bisexuals being greedy I yeah thought, and this isn't about your dad specifically but in general I 
I feel like when people say that, they're saying that you can just choose a particular population, which tells me that that person feels like they have to choose. Yeah. So maybe they're all like pan or, I mean, who knows? I feel like our own limitations sometimes can really shape what we believe. And that's how we fall into these like stereotypes. We're so afraid of that part of ourselves Mm -hmm. that what if we're you know, what if we are attracted to somebody else from this other group? (laughs) You know, that it's this insidious thing, even if rationally you think, oh, that's okay for other people. Yeah. I mean, and it goes back to what you're saying about the social construct. Everything is a social construct in this conversation, you know, not just gender, but also sexual orientation and the expectations of what relationships should look like. Like that is all socially constructed and you can also again go back to love romance and sex you can have variations or different levels as it were of those those emotions or those feelings towards people of different genders so you could be more sexually attracted to a male gender or more romantically attracted to a female gender or vice versa. And, and then of course there's different people. It's like, there's a straight, straight people unattracted to everybody who's of the different gender, right? And um, so yeah, with, with being bi, you don't choose to be bisexual and you don't choose your partner in the same way bi people can be monogamous in the same way straight people can be monogamous. It's interesting. I was looking at definitions of gender yeah. over the years. Yeah. And there are some really cringy ones <laughs> <laughs> that today feel very cringy. Like there's one from 1882 from an Oxford dictionary. Yeah. That is, it's your kind, breed, or sex. And it talks about like the breed of human you are because it was all about breeding. I mean, yes. even marriage was about yeah. function, right? It was yeah. like which which genes would go with which, which genes. Yeah. And now World Health Organization talks about gender as socially constructed roles, behaviors, expressions, identities. Yeah. And they talk about girls, boys, women, men, and gender diverse people. Yeah. And that's a lot of growth we've had yeah. in, in a short time. And there's still so much more that, yeah. that needs to happen. So I wanted to ask you about your own gender identity. What does being female or being a woman or having she, her pronouns mean to you? Yeah. And and it is still there just because it's a social construct doesn't mean it also doesn't exist at a certain level inside of you. There is that inherent feeling of your gender. I was asked this question about 10 years ago now, and I really regret what I said because the question was, yeah, how do you know your gender? And of course I just assumed, oh, I'm a woman. Like I've always felt like I'm a woman. I haven't really ever questioned it because I haven't felt a need to question it. But I immediately went down the line of the physical part of my being as opposed to the sense of self. So I 
10 years ago said, well, I'm shaped like a woman, you know, and I have a very classic feminine socially constructed body shape where I've got like a small waist and a huge ass and, 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 and boobs. Um, and I dress very feminine. I express myself very feminine with like lipstick, high heels, dresses and all that kind of stuff. But it just, just feels comfortable to me. And that's really the bottom line is like, it just is something that is a sense of self, like feeling comfortable in your skin. And so when you actually break down gender in three things, it's who you know yourself to be, how you express yourself to the world, and then how the world sees you. And of course, that third part of how the world sees you, that's like the socially constructed part of it, like the biggest part of it, because society is making this judgment of all of us depending on how we're expressing ourselves to the world. And so I do have an inherent sense of being a woman and being female, but I think round the edges, there's a part of that that rejects the social construct of that. What parts of the social construct of femininity do you reject? I'm sure that this is not uncommon. I'm not going to say anything groundbreaking, unique in this, but I reject that there's been the subconscious expectations of how I'm meant to behave and what I'm meant to do. One of my pet peeves has been, I used to fly a lot for work and I'm only five foot one and I used to carry on my luggage a lot. And so I'm also reasonably strong. I'm a lot stronger than people would assume. And I can quite happily pick up my carry-on case and put it in a locker above my head. And the number of times that a male presenting person would ask if I would like help putting up my bag, which I know they're just being polite, but sometimes they literally are taking the bag out of my hand, making the assumption that I can't do it. I'm like, get your freaking hands off my stuff. Like I actually enjoy putting this above my head because I want to grab as much exercise as I can right now. Um, But they wouldn't ask the male presenting person who might be a similar height to me if they want help. I was once like lining up um, to get into a car rental at an airport. There was like, two male presenting people in front of me and then me and then another female presenting person showed up behind me and we were waiting about five minutes for the shuttle and of course when you're in line to get a rental car you want to be as far in the front line as possible because you want to get your car and go Um, but the male presenting people turned and looked at me and looked at me to get on to the bus first and I go no no you go because they're in the head of the line and so there was this pause where they were like um, really weirded out because I wouldn't get on first, even though it wasn't my turn. And so the female person behind me just went ahead of all of us and got on the bus first. And it's things like that that really irritate me where don't treat me differently because I'm presenting myself in such a feminine way. Yeah, I've heard over the years, I'm sure you've heard comments like this from a male presenting person who will say, I can't even open the door for a woman anymore. <laughs> And I'm like, I will gladly open the door for you if you're struggling. Like if you're having a hard time or if I just want to be friendly, it doesn't offend me if someone opens the door for me. But if they open the door for me and then just treat all the people who seem like guys like crap, that's not okay with me. Open the door for all of us. Can't we just treat each other like equal, valuable people? Yeah. No, exactly. I'm, I'm, there was a time when it would irritate me if anyone opened the door for me if they were male presenting. And and I've shifted a bit where, yeah, I do 
I do just um, fall in line with it now. And it doesn't irritate me so much. It is it is nice. But I want to be able to open the door for somebody as well. And yeah, yeah I'm, I agree with you. Like all these... You know, you get criticized for not like acting like a woman or doing, being a woman. Yes, or not smiling or whatever oh, it is. Oh, gosh. That's one of the worst. Yeah. 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 How has this worked? Because this has become so much more than your personal journey. Yeah. And it seems like you sensed that yeah. early on, that there was this something more and this yeah. purpose for you. Yeah. And you've been doing this now for years and working in so many different communities and doing your activism and your TV work. How has this impacted your your sense of self, um, maybe your sense of gender, maybe your sense of sexuality even? Yeah. With with the sense of gender, it like when you write something or teach or talk, you know, you learn so much yourself, don't you? And it has got me thinking about my gender because I've never questioned it. And I think that all cisgender people should question their own gender because we walk through the world with all of these assumptions and trans, non-binary, people that don't match the labels that somebody else has given them are the ones that do the deeper work on it. And really we should all be doing that work. So I still go by she, her. I don't feel like it's right for me to add they, them to my pronouns because I feel like I want to give the space and the stage and the room for non-binary people who really need that more than I do. But if somebody were to use they, them to me, it would not hurt. Whereas for non-binary people, it hurts when they have them when they're misgendered. But at the same time, I don't feel like I do reject the social construct of the female gender that is put upon me. And and I have a fierce like um, fight within me. And I typically don't like to say fight, <laughs> but um, a fire. I have a strong sense of fired upness inside of me. <laughs> this is why we were instantly friends. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To say, yeah, I may look like this. Been inside. I feel really fucking queer. Like, yes. <laughs> was I think I think I wrote like um, I may present feminine, but inside I'm a a uh, gender bending unicorn dressed up as a pirate wench. <laughs> I love that so much more. Right. I mean, which sounds more fun to you? Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> Let's be a gender bending unicorn. <laughs> I love it. Wench. Love um, it. So there's that, and then and then also like being by. Um, really, I am monogamous. Um, I have questioned poly um, in, and of course there's many different ways to be poly. Um, but I do think that inherently I am a one person person and I haven't yet found that one person. And um, I'll go through periods where I find that I'm dating cis men more than anyone else. And I get, I get bored with myself. I'm thinking, oh my God, why am I another cis man? Great. <laughs> like, can we not mix this up a bit? And so then there's a part of me that thinks, oh, am I still bisexual? I'm like, yes, Fiona, of course you're bisexual. <laughs> I know I'm bisexual. Yeah. Um, so I'd really love to meet somebody who's not a cisgender man. <laughs> really <laughs> that'd be so much nicer <laughs> but okay the, the joking apart most bi people are gonna end up 
with somebody who is a different gender because statistically that's much more of the options that we have available to us and I really want to stop people from saying oh my god you're bisexual that means you've got like double the opportunity actually no you don't have double the opportunity so let's just break this down a second right I'm a cisgender woman has the capacity to be attracted to people of any genders let's just look at the we'll use binary language I'm sorry y'all for males and females right so if I'm a, a woman then on the males then maybe the straight men, but not every straight man might be an option. Um, Maybe some of the bi men might be an option. Um, And then the gay men probably are not going to be an option. But that's like a lot of straight guys. And then that's like a lot of bi people and then no gays. Over here on the female side, you've got all the straight women. Well, that's that's the largest pool well, they're not going to be available to me because they're not bi, they're straight. And then you've got the bi women and the lesbians. And typically lesbians don't want to go anywhere near a bi person, but we can talk about that another time if you like. And so the numbers, no, it's not like double the opportunity. And there's more people of a different gender that could potentially be attracted to me. And so I think that's one of the reasons why we have such bi erasure and because we're not seen, like people are just looking at us as either single or straight and they're not seeing us as bi. Like when you see two male presenting people walking down the street, holding hands and kissing, don't make the assumption that they're both gay because one or both of them might be bi or pan or another label that feels right for them. And until we are able to verbalize that, until we're able to be seen more accurately in media representation in film and TV, Those are the things that need to change in order for us to kind of come out and raise our levels of consciousness and be more aware of of all of this stuff. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So beautifully said. Thank you for that. So this was not intentional as my last question, but I didn't ask you about the blowjob learning curve, (laughs) which was like the big highlight for me. Okay. So the dedication of the book says for dad. Please just skip the parts where I talk about blowjobs, which I think is hilarious. And my dad wrote the afterword of the book. And the afterword, sorry, dad, is like the most boring part of the book because he's taken this like very clinical, (laughs) dry perspective. I mean, he is in his early 70s now. So, you know, anyway, but thank you, dad. I'm extremely grateful that my dad has allowed me to um, be so vocal about these things. But there's actually like an educational point as to why that's the dedication. So in the introduction... I talk about how when I first came to realize that I was a lesbian, that I excitedly told friends that I'd never have to give a blowjob again (laughs) because I used to hate giving blowjobs. It's so intimidating and and you want to be sexy and you're trying to be like a porn star, but then you just feel like you're failing and you're intimidated. Anyway, so I was like, yes, I'm a lesbian. I don't have to give blowjobs again. And then when I later re-identified as bisexual, I was like, oh shit, am I going to have to give blowjobs again? And then I was like, hang on a minute. Being a lesbian doesn't mean that blowjobs are off the books because, hello, some women are born with a penis and would like to keep it and have a blowjob. And so it's like a big aha moment for me of how our community can be so transphobic uh, without realizing it. And people sometimes have best intentions and they think they're being funny, but can we just remember that gender is between our ears and a social construct? And sex is primarily visible between our legs and is chromosomes and hormones running through our body. They're different. They're kind of related, but they're different. And so it's very important to remember that lesbians, some lesbians 
would like to give and receive blowjobs. And did that help you enjoy them more? <laughs> well, at the end of the introduction, I put, P.S., Dad, shut your eyes. I don't mind giving a blowjob to the person I love now. Funny how things change. Fiona isn't alone in her previous distaste, uh, no pun intended, of going down on a penis. In a recent Canadian study, only 28% of the 500 straight female participants found giving a blowjob pleasurable, and 17% didn't enjoy them at all. Some of that comes from another social construct, this idea that women and vulva owners are designed to be receivers, and men and penis havers, the givers. Another possible contributor is shame, and I relate to that. Because I used to also think that they were kind of Yuck. Yeah. And I think that was shame for me. Yeah. I mean, nobody has to love everything. You don't have to be into any activity, right? right. And I think that's really important. And it's also important to ask ourselves and like question why we are averse to something. Yeah. And for me, embracing my own sexuality made me really unlock all of this pleasure potential from different acts that I never thought would be pleasurable. But it took me a lot of learning to get there. Yeah. I think for me, um, it is the connection with somebody, you know, and I would say like on the demisexual box, as it were, or label. And I think that confidence comes when you have emotional intimacy with your sexual partner and you're able to communicate and talk about these things. As I've gotten older, I'm a lot more confident in my ability to ask like and, and I think that then that makes it easier for your ability to yes. perform or behave right isn't that so true so I can say do you like this does this feel good how yeah. do you like this you know and like and then having a conversation during sex in that way to be able to know that rather than having to guess like when I was younger before coming out as a lesbian and thinking I was giving up blowjobs forever I think I was just too afraid to ask what felt good assuming that, oh, I should already know without, you know, thinking about it, which of course is ridiculous. And then as you get older, as I got, as I'm getting older, I give less shits about what I look like in bed or if I'm good enough. And, and like you say, like ridding yourself of the shame or the inadequacy and realizing, no, I'm a badass. This sexual relationship is going to work if we're a good match for each other. You're not going to have the best sexual relationship with every other human being, and that's okay. Um, but when you do find somebody that you click with sexually, then it's a lot more exciting, and and um, blowjobs are a lot more enjoyable. <laughs> and cut. <laughs> I love that. Learn more from Fiona Dawson by following her on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at the handles Fiona J. Dawson and now with Fiona. She told me that she loves making personal storytelling videos for companies to use internally to uplift and celebrate their employees. You can learn more at freelionproductions.com. And if you enjoyed what you've heard today, you can also get two bonus tips from Fiona plus another quick story or two from our conversation 
by joining my community at patreon.com slash girlboner. And if you are enjoying Girl Boner Radio, I would so appreciate a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the iTunes store. It would also be awesome if you would share links with your friends. This show is edited, produced, etc. by me, August McLaughlin. Mackenzie Mazel engineered my session with Fiona at The Period Studio. Thank you, Mackenzie, and thank you all so much for listening. Mm-hmm.